Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Richard Hanania, the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology and a research fellow at Defense Priorities. He was formerly a research fellow at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University, received his PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles, and is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. Richard has published academic works that contribute to the studies of American foreign policy, international law, political psychology, the role of nuclear weapons in international politics, and civil war. I welcome Richard Hanania to Savage Minds. It's been a really strange time, hasn't it, to see what's been going on? Oh, absolutely. Not just in terms of the politics of, of Ukraine and Russia and NATO and on and on, but something that you wrote in January that really it synced with a lot of things I've been saying these last 10 years, basically. In, in mm -hmm. your article, Russia and the Great Satan in the Liberal Imagination, you spoke a lot about what I've been working on for the past 10 years. A lot of people see Russia, Ukraine mm -hmm. in terms of hemispheric NATO experience. There's that analysis too to be made but there's been a creeping of what used to be far right-wing ideological myths firmly taking hold of the liberal class even more securely sprung upon us again with russiagate egged on by corporate media remember uh rachel maddow's nightly fits no facts to back that up but somehow that's been recycled successfully skipped to the hunter biden laptop that was a very bizarre scene for me to witness within the media. Mm -hmm. In this article, you use the House of Cards as your kickoff point for the piece. But I'm wondering if you might discuss what your article got to. The heart of it was about the culture war that has taken part of this ideological narrative from the so-called left than any true heartfelt concern for the people of Ukraine. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking of, well, you take, as you mentioned in your article, the 2013 law, the Russian law banning gay propaganda towards minors. I also noted this mm -hmm. in an interview with one of the Pussy Riot members years ago in London, who immediately swung to transgender politics. And I was a bit like, whoa, that took me off guard. It was phenomenal to witness that what is at stake <laughs> are men who claim to be women unable to travel out of Ukraine, but zero, I mean, these are so-called leftists, zero material analysis for the fact that most Ukrainian women can't even afford bus fare. What's up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, people are, you know, they're, they're morally outraged at this moment by the Russian invasion, and they're not thinking clearly. They've never thought clearly about foreign policy, I and mean, most people most of the time are not thinking about foreign policy at all. Um, and then it comes to their attention during crises, during moments like this, during things like Iraq. Um, and uh, yeah, they act... Um, yeah, I mean, and they're acting from emotion. They want to punish some people. They want to show support for uh, others. And I mean, people are, you know, doing things like wishing, you know, a long war that'll bleed Russia. I mean, it's going to be bad for Russia. That would be worse for Ukraine. I mean, there's no real concern for the humanitarianism of what people, uh, the humanitarian impact of what people um, are calling for. Uh, so it's very sad. I think this is just, um, I think this is just, you know, what you expect when people start, you know, getting really excited about a political issue. Certainly, we're seeing a lot of emotion from the people who just a year ago were epidemiologists, right? Everyone became an overnight epidemiologist on COVID, and now they're experts in Ukraine foreign affairs. And their, their intake of information is coming from MSNBC, CNN, 
And it's, it's appalling, the coverage. Uh, appalling doesn't even say it. There has to be a, a steeper word there. When I go to CNN, all of these mainstream media outlets, they are skipping over facts to get to politicization. We see flags on Twitter and all the social media outlets. People are saying, oh, we're with, we stand with the people of Ukraine. Well, that's not really the point here. No one really wants a war in Ukraine. But there's a backstory that major media has carefully skipped around as they skipped around the facts of Russiagate. How many retractions were there for all the lies about Russiagate, Richard? Uh, I mean, there were some on specific uh, 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 stories that turned out to be false, but you're right. Uh, the overall narrative, I mean, was there. And yeah, there, there, there's never been a sort of uh, understanding of how, how we got to that point. But I'll say Russiagate, I mean, it was not just uh, the media. It wasn't just Democrats. It was Republicans in Congress that went along with it. I don't think you get Russiagate uh, without the bipartisan pressure. That's true. That's true. And there's been an interesting swing there since Trump with Liz Cheney as well. I'm intrigued by all the bouncing back and forth and trying to garner support for narratives that have no legs. And one thing you said in the article that struck me, I'm going to quote you, Brexit, Trump and the rise of Orban and other right wing populists in Europe have helped solidify a narrative in which Russian hackers and influence operations are behind everything liberal elites find distasteful, from opposition to Syrian refugees to bans on critical race theory. What is the position here, do you think, of a lot of these liberal elites in placing a kind of moralist, puritanical twist on their views about transgender identity, gays who are being somehow forced into conversion therapy, even though they don't say that when it comes to young gay kids being told that they're really the opposite sex, right? And all of this narrative that's coming out on terms of identifying as a race. The interconnection between what's happened in the Ukraine in terms of the larger cultural war that your piece in January fleshes out. Yeah, well, I mean, Russians are a convenient, uh, you know, so I think you have to think about sort of psychologically where the left is coming from. And I think it's interesting, you know, to just think about, you know, what the things that get them mad, what things they don't get mad about and the arguments they make. And by doing that, I think we can have some kind of uh, coherent story of what truly motivates them, right? Uh, so I think there's there's basically, uh, you know, I think that this is not probably not unique to the left, but I think fundamental to their worldview is they define themselves by an enemy. So conservatives, I mean, I think they dislike liberals. They have a prototype in their mind. Everyone has a prototype. So, you know, not everyone, but, you know, political ideologies, uh, political tribes tend to have a prototype of the person on the other side that they don't like. Uh, so on the left, I mean, there is a prototype of a white Christian heterosexual male uh, conservative uh, who is the root of all evil in the world. And sometimes, you know, they, they say this uh, explicitly. And the more of those categories you fall into, the more they, you know, the more that you could be disliked. So if you're not in one of those categories, if you're a white male, but you're liberal, you're sort of okay. If you're, a, uh, if, you're a, a, if you're conservative, but you're not white, like, you know, uh, fundamentalist Muslims, then that's, you know, that, that that's iffy that, that 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 there's no um there's no like rage there and so you can see in for example when you know uh 
uh, when when the left, for example, sanctions American states like some California, for example, uh, based on uh, tr uh, trans issues, they will say you cannot use state funds in California to travel to, say, Tennessee or Texas. I mean, that is, you know, normal part of uh, law in, in, in blue states. And so Russia, I think, is where you get the domestic and the uh, uh, international politics where they come together. Well, the domestic prejudices get to play their full role because Russia is the only real adversary the U.S. has had in the world, um, you know, decades and decades, uh, probably since the Second World War, where the other side was white, uh, Christian, uh, you know, heterosexual, um, uh, conservative. I mean, traditionally conservative in the in the social issue sense, particularly on, on, on things like gay rights. Um, and I think this is this can't be ignored. That's the point of my essay. This can't be ignored as sort of a source of tensions in the U.S.-Russia relationship. How much of what we are seeing today is linked to the fall of the USSR and to, I'd say, a general sense within the United States, specifically a, a Russia phobia that's been there since the Second World War? Uh, I mean, that's there too. I don't know if the, you know, how much American, you know, it's, I, well, I think the one piece of evidence that that's some, there's something going on there is if you look at um, people who want to be involved in uh, the Ukraine uh, situation and they really want to take an anti-Russian stance, it's the oldest Americans. So the older you are, um, the more likely, it's not even the older you are, it's, you know, like 50 and 50 or 60 uh, above, the, above that age, people really want to uh, aggressive, they want to aggressively confront Russia. And so what's the explanation for that? you know and the youngest being the youngest people you know are the, are the least likely and perhaps the explanation of that um is that it's just cold war nostalgia they grew up thinking of russia as the enemy so russia is still the enemy so they want to they want to fight russia right and among republicans if you look at older republicans versus younger republicans it's the same thing older republicans really don't like russia and younger republicans are, are you know are not are not as hostile um that makes sense. I mean, there's a possible theory that the old people just watch a lot of TV and TV is just for their news compared to other groups. And TV is dominated by the uh, the pro-war position uh, much more than, say, the Internet and social media, where you usually gets usually get something different. Although in this in this case, in this conflict now, uh, there's, uh, you know, social media has just basically been like TV for the most part. I mean, people have have really lost their minds. Uh, so, yeah, I think there could be something there. It seems like a generational thing. And, you know, hopefully it'll Go, you know, it'll hopefully it'll decrease over time. Well, you mentioned this position of liberals, and I was going to ask you about this because it's something that I'm I'm on the left, but I don't. I feel like the left has left me. Uh, all the things that are linked to historical material analysis, well, that's out the window. You can't possibly say a man can be a woman and hold a historical material analysis. And we've seen this slowly shifting politics, even within trade unions moving towards what many might call a more conservative position. Look what happened in Chicago with the schools around COVID. Look around COVID all over the place in states like where you are. You gave a presentation in Austin recently and you noted being able to see faces, something that we can't do here in Europe in most countries at this moment. And there's something very shocking to me about how the left rallied behind some of the most draconian policies, the most illiberal policies. Do you differentiate between the liberals and the more hardcore leftists? 
Hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't know about classifications, you know, for people. I mean, when people say this is leftist, this is liberal, you know, right. I, I, you know, I don't, ha- I tend not to have like a position on those arguments. I just use words the way uh, people use them. Um, I think that, you know, for the, the specific on the, the COVID issue, you know, I think it is interesting. And I think it really shows something where um, I think there's a lot of sorting that a lot of conservative and liberal liberalism now is based on neuroticism. So neuroticism is one of the personality traits were basically, you know, being, being neurotic. I mean, it's basically the, the scientific measure of that. Um, and liberals or particularly liberal women are much, much higher on that than other people. Um, and I think so you, I think you see that. I think you could explain wokeness in that way. People are just hypersensitive. Um, you know, they can't hear anything that upsets them and they want, you know, they want to shut down speech that hurts them. And then you see the same thing with COVID where people are overly afraid um, of the disease and are putting themselves behind masks and, you know, staying, wanting to stay home forever. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I think that these personality differences are explaining a lot of what we see and ideology maybe explains less than, than, uh, than we might think. Certainly. I'm sure you noted that the Università di Milano has now banned the teaching of Dostoevsky. <laughs> Irony bells went off in my head. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's the same, it's the same people I think that are getting most excited. I mean, there's some Twitter accounts you can see there's a, that they go from uh, wokeness to COVID hysteria to now hysteria over the Russia Ukraine thing. Now I'll say the Russia Ukraine war is actually a big deal uh, for global politics. So it's, it's like, it is worth worrying about. Um, right, you have right. to worry about it in a smart and constructive way. While COVID, I think after the vaccines became available, wasn't really something that we should uh, worry about. And wokeness is just, you know, it's own category of, uh, of sort of a mental illness. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that there's, you know, there, there is this common thread of people being hyperly emotional, being addicted to virtue signaling, uh, and then going out and, uh, and basically advocating policies or joining the discourse. Um, and, and then that's, that's reflected there. Is this partly the fault though of the media? Because I do this thing every week or two or three, whenever I have a moment free, I take a screen grab of usually CNN or the BBC, and I call it this ain't fucking news because their page is replete with what Kanye said, what some billionaire's yacht is doing to make the earth green, all this nonsense, it's not news at all, and, and probably factually inaccurate, a lot of it. And trying to sell a billionaire's yacht as somehow saving the earth is incorrect anyways. But I noticed that the news is about churning out emotion. It's not about informing us anymore. And I include the more traditional outlets like the New York Times that seem to have fed the frenzy. We're not seeing a lot of coverage that's what I would call more objective, that's just stating facts and not out there to say, as you noted on Twitter this week, you basically underscored the fact that people are calling out this war in terms of transgender politics. What does that have to do with the Ukrainians who are being bombed? Yeah, there. Uh, you know, this is, I think, uh, what you get when you have a, um, uh, uh, you know, a market system and you have media and people want to read about celebrities and they want to read about, you know, rich people and gossip and and all those things. So I think that's inevitable. I don't know if that's, you know, that's that's harmful. I mean, people have that interest and they want to, you know, they want to indulge in that. I actually think I would rather a lot of people read the gossip page uh, than, you know, get hysterical about things that they shouldn't be getting hysterical about. Like again, uh, being worried about COVID after you've had your vaccine. I mean. 
that's ridiculous. I'd rather the people who are inclined to do that not read uh, news in the first place. Um, but but yeah, I think the um, I think there are certainly um, there are certainly serious issues with the media. It's certainly biased. I mean, I think if you you know the the like TV where I mean by probably just as influential or more influential than the print print word. But you know if you look at the coverage of the uh, uh, Ukraine uh, the Russia Ukraine war right now um, on TV versus the press, you know the New York Times or the Washington Post not not really that bad if you actually read the articles. If you go to t- you know turn on TV, you look at NB- MSNBC or you look at CNN, it's a different business model. I mean, you, and it's it's a different kind of reporter that's working there. I mean, the people you could see the emotion in their faces. You know, they, you, you could tell that they can't really uh, be objective uh, uh, on this uh, situation and foreign policy more generally. I mean, there's just a just a very clear reflection um, of the uh, American foreign est- policy establishment and its policies and what it wants. Um, and yeah, this is unfortunate. I think the uh, the um, the bias is basically different on every issue. So you'd say there there's a militaristic bias on foreign policy, you know, but there's a left wing or identity politics bias on uh, identity related issues. Um, so yeah, you really have to go issue by issue and sort of adjust what you're uh, uh, what you're seeing and how you're taking in information accordingly. Well, I noticed on the BBC this past ten days the coverage has been staunchly critical of Russia without any kind of background analysis, which is my worry. A lot of people, you're correct, they take in the television news more often than they will read online. In fact, a lot of people aren't reading articles, they're reading headlines and then sharing without reading. And I wonder to what degree this is helpful that the media is making a political ideology rather than representing facts. You know, I think back to Robert Fisk and his coverage in the Middle East for so many decades, which got at issues. People criticized him for sitting down with bin Laden, but he went and sat down with bin Laden because that's what journalists do. Instead, we have Don Lemon crying over Ukraine, but very likely, like many other Americans, people are very unaware that the US and Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, were on the same side in the Second World War. It's quite astonishing to me to see the paucity of historical information from people who are declaring, and you've seen this, uh, Putin is now Hitler. Yeah, there you're right. There is no you know historical perspective. Um, the Ukraine conflict, as John Marshimer uh, has pointed out, people should watch his uh, his great talk from 2014 that they can find easily on YouTube. Um, you know, there uh, you know this conflict didn't start last last night. I mean, the conflict started. Uh, but basically, the current iteration of what's going on is when there was an overthrow of a democratic democratically elected government uh, in Ukraine. Um, there was uh, there was uh, decades of um, Russian anger at NATO expansion, and people will deny NATO has anything to do with it. I mean, this is just completely historically illiterate and, you know, just contradictory towards common sense. Any, you know, any country, any major power would care if another that uh, another country was building uh, military bases and forming alliances with its neighbors. I mean, I don't know why people have such a hard time uh, believing that. Um, and so you're right. I mean, so, you know, journalists, they can't give the entire you know, history of everything every time they speak about a topic, but they can give sort of the more 
relevant you know historical facts even the present day facts i mean the, the you know we get no uh coverage of the perspective of russian speakers and uh, people of russian background uh within ukraine many of them polls show and, and how they vote um they want a uh, peaceful relations and they want better relations with russia um and so you're right i mean you know i don't know if there is a possibility i don't know if it's even possible to have um, you know non-biased media that just presents the facts, everything is going to have sort of an angle. Um, I think it's just realizing what the angle is uh, for what what we're usually reading in the Western press. Can you speak a bit about the U.S. involvement in Ukraine? Because we had Biden and other government officials there, one of whom was handing out biscuits to protesters, if you recall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. supported, yeah, the, the U.S., uh, you know, it wasn't uh, probably wasn't all driven by the U.S., but the U.S. Uh, was um, uh, supporting the uh, the protest against Yanukovych and they wanted, you know, a certain outcome there. There was not a, uh, uh, you know, they, it's just not like the U.S. just wanted democracy and then whatever happened with democracy, you know, they would be happy with. They wanted a, um, a certain outcome. And we've seen, you know, the U.S. support democracy promotion overseas. I mean, democracy promotion is, is just sort of a euphemism for regime change. They want to get rid of the governments in power and replace them with other governments. And, you know, when we talk about countries being aggressive, I mean, I just think this is just, you know, this is fundamentally what aggression is. Um, and we, we don't see it that way. We see it as the U.S. is trying to bring, bring you know, make the world a better place. Uh, and other countries are just resisting that. Can you place the role of NATO in this? Because a lot of listeners, especially of the younger generations, do not understand what is at stake and how NATO is very much in the U.S. policies are very much a part of what's happened. So the um, so you know NATO was originally formed uh, for the uh, Soviet to uh, head up the Soviet Union um, to basically to stop a Soviet invasion of uh, of Western Europe um, during the Cold War and uh, you know the Soviet Union co collapsed uh, in 1991 and basically since that time the U.S. made a promise that it would not expand NATO eastward so uh, the uh, so the communist world and the capitalist world were divided. Uh, at, at Germany, basically, but the U.S., you know, started expanding NATO. It went to Hungary, Poland, uh, Czech Republic. It brought them into the alliance, and it got closer and closer to Russia's borders, right? And then it went to the Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, and every, and like throughout this entire history, the you know the uh, you know two and a half decades, uh, three decades, this has been happening. Um, the uh, Russians have been making clear that they don't like it. Uh, Americans, you can find American leaders um, saying at different uh, uh, points of time uh, that the Russians don't like it. This is opposed by everyone across the political spectrum. And the way the Russians have seen it is basically that the U.S. is, um, is encircling it. It's threatening it. It's sending uh, troops to its, uh, basically sending uh, uh, soldiers and um, militarizing and putting missiles uh, on its borders. And, you know, all you have to do is to see that this, you know, that this is, uh, this would uh, provoke a reaction in any other country is just think about what the U.S. does when other countries um, try to have a role to play in the Western Hemisphere. Um, you know, we don't see that because we have the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which goes back uh, two centuries now, um, where we basically say no other power can really have, you know, anything to do militarily with Latin America. The U.S. is basically the only one who can interfere in Latin American politics. Uh, we had uh, uh, Soviet Union, we, with the Soviet Union, when they tried to put missiles in Cuba, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
crisis, you know, our government almost blew up the world over it. And we just don't want to never tolerate the things we expect Russia to tolerate. And so if you just look at this situation from the perspective of, you know, uh, how does this look if how would this look if the shoe was on the other foot? Um, I think anyone can see with common sense that this would, you know, this would not be acceptable, but somehow we accept, we expect Russia to accept it. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. The Cuban Missile Crisis has come up quite a lot in the past week over this war. And many people are saying this is the next danger. There are now talks of nuclear arms. What do you see as the outcome for what is going on? Because some specialists in this area are saying that this can last years. Uh, yeah, I mean, this could, you know, this could last years. I mean, uh, you know, we hope it doesn't, but, you know, sometimes wars do last that long. Um, you know, I, 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 this case, it might be hard to see because I think Russia is going to really up the pressure. So I think the conventional of this war i don't know it, you know it's going to be hard to see if it can last very long because you know eventually uh the ukrainian forces will be destroyed and then we'll see if there's really uh, much room for an insurgency but you know the ukrainians are going to have support from you know unlimited amount of support from western europe and from the united states um and you know there's no clear end to this in sight i mean i think eventually russia will probably annex some territory probably you know will have will demand some kind of uh uh, some kind of settlement where uh, Ukraine is uh, neutral. It's not joining NATO. Um, it's not threatening Russia from its perspective. The government there is more compliant to Moscow. Uh, but we're not, you know, it doesn't appear we're close. Uh, we're close to a, um, uh, to a bargain or to an end to the fighting here, unfortunately. Today, CNN ran a piece that I, I shared on Facebook because I had a good laugh. It's the title is journalists from Russia's last independent news network are fleeing the country. Now, RT news is being shut down all over the EU and the US also has chimed in on this. I find this quite ironic, giving our government's treatment of journalists and whistleblowers. And of course, I'm referring to Assange and to Snowden and others. How is it that an American reader cannot see the irony in this. It, it, there's something very appalling about this to me. Yeah, I mean, they went after, um, they went after uh, uh, Assange, right, for basically publishing classified information, which the journalists at the New York Times and the Washington Post are allowed to do. Uh, they do it all the time. Uh, you're right. It is a, it is a pretty ridiculous, it is a pretty ridiculous thing. I mean, the other thing is when they say, you know, we have to defend a rules-based international order. I mean, that's, that's great, but the U.S. is the biggest violator of the fundamentals of international law. That is, you know, don't invade other countries, don't interfere with their politics. The U.S. is by far uh, the great, you know, the, uh, uh, the one who the violates international law the most on, on the fundamental things. Um, and so, yeah, it's the same thing with the, with the, the treatment of journalists. I mean, Russia, you know, clearly prosecutes more journalists. But when the when the U.S. really finds someone inconvenient uh, for what the government is trying to do, it like Snowden try to do, like Snowden or Assange, they have no hesitancy uh, about going after them. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right on that. And you cited a Quillette article last week on Twitter, where in the article it stated Ukrainian entry into NATO was purely theoretical, and you wrote. 
U.S. personnel were already in Ukraine. It put NATO accession into its constitution, and it was something U.S. establishment desperately wanted. Don't trust these people, lies big and small. Can you expand upon this? Yeah, I mean, the idea that NATO ex uh, expansion was theoretical, like, no, the U.S. in 2008 uh, basically you know, said that it has a policy goal um, to bring uh, Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. I mean, Ukraine has been working for that goal. It's been, um, you know, uh, doing the passing resolutions that its parliament calling for it. U.S. had advisors uh, in, in, in the Ukraine before the war started and they left, you know, when Russia invaded, but there were some American uh, military advisors there. So it's not, it's not, that's not theoretical. I mean, that is a policy goal that the U.S. and Ukraine uh, were working towards. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, just a general, you know, uh, dishonesty here. I mean, I think, I think it was a Francis Fukuyama who wrote that article offer Colette. I mean, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the war hawks, I mean, they, they, they want to basically present certain facts, uh, hide others, um, sometimes, you know, dist distort facts. I mean, you could you really have to have subject matter knowledge, uh, to understand just when they're basically lying to you, lying directly or lying by omission. And, uh, you know, I just pointed that out because that was a particularly grotesque case of that. What are some other cases you're seeing in the media of outright lies? Uh, so, I mean, the idea there's something uh, called the Budapest Memorandum. They they say basically that the U.S. guaranteed uh, Ukraine's um, uh, independence. You can go back and look at uh, look at that. There's the Buda, uh, the Budapest Agreement. There's basically there's nothing there that says the U.S. has to defend uh, Ukraine's uh, rights. Um, the idea that Ukraine is a democracy. I've written about that. I've I've talked about that. Um, Ukraine is a, is a democracy of sorts. They have elections, but they also have a lot of human rights violations. They have a lot of practices that people don't consider um, consistent with uh, liberal democracy, like uh, banning Russian language media, um, banning all language and uh, all Russian language media. That is not just certain outlets that they accuse of, you know, fomenting uh, uh, rebellion, um, but Russian uh, media in general. They have a language law that, you know, gets rid of uh, um also, uh, education and, and non-languages uh, other than Ukrainian. So the idea that you know Ukraine is some great defender of uh, human rights, some great beacon of freedom in the world, uh, is another one of these uh, misrepresentations. The idea that this has nothing to do with NATO. I mean, this one is absolutely crazy. I mean, Russia has said time and time again, American. Um, American uh, leaders like uh, uh, the, uh, Will Burns, who's the um, who's the director of the CIA, has has said this in uh, decades past that basically the uh, U.S. is um, that they basically the Russians across the political spectrum hate NATO expansion and this is motivating them and they care a lot about this. Again, who like why would you deny uh, that this is possible? Um, and I th I think even the ways we're covering sort of the progress of the war. I mean, like every you know I'm on Twitter and every um, account that's following the war is showing basically Ukrainian victory after victory. Uh, basically, Ukrainians are stopping Russians here and they're capturing this and they're doing that. But then you see the Russians keep advancing. The Russians keep gaining more territory and they keep get, they just uh, uh, seize their first major city, uh, Kherson. Uh, they're closing in on Mariupol, so they might, they, they might have that by the time uh, people listen to this. Um, and so I think it's, it's very strange. We're, we're saying, you know, this is great Ukrainian resistance. And some of it has been, you know, unquestionably uh, brave and, um, you know, and effective more effective than a lot of people thought. Uh, but still, I mean, the story is of Russian progress here, and we're not even getting that story straight. How much of the pushing back within 
the readership of major media in the States, also in Europe, though, we're seeing a lot of blue and yellow flags on people's Facebook accounts these days. It's this kind of patina of nationalism, even by people who are clearly not Ukraine nationals. There's some kind of melding here with this historical mythical image of Russia as the Soviet Union. It's almost as if people have not separated the two. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a race has a lot to do with it. I think it's both the fact that white people are the bad guys, which makes a lot of uh, people uh, more comfortable. The fact that white people are the uh, the, the so-called good guys. Um, you know, people want uh, stories with white villains and and white heroes. I mean, people are generally indifferent to third world conflicts between non-white people. That is, people in the West. I mean, they usually they usually don't care. Um, but basically, being able to look at the Ukrainians and say they are like us, and you could see this with the refugee issues. People are. You know, European countries are are uh, seem much more willing to open the doors to Ukrainian refugees than they have been to Middle Eastern refugees, um, and uh, yeah, and and so you and and so you and so you see this, but then at the same time, like what we talked about with Russia being the great Satan because it is this you know white sort of reactionary uh, state. Um, so this is a very you know unique. Uh, case it's also i mean they're also they're also being i think manipulated by the propaganda i mean this is the this is what the american establishment wants people to care about they want to care about ukraine because it fits with their geopolitical goals they care about bringing ukraine into nato uh confronting russia and so you know there's a lot of wars where you can uh you know we did care about like we as in we in the west did care about the uh, a lot of the uh a lot of the um repression from for example the syrian government when they when the national security establishment wanted us to be involved in syria they got a lot of attention not as much as this obviously uh, but it did get some attention because the point was to start a war um and or get american americans involved in a war and then with yemen where it's the u.s basically supporting the humanitarian catastrophe you know there's just not, nothing about yemen just very very little coverage of that and then something like the Congo, where like there's not you know a direct American policy outcome, you know just no coverage at all. Um, and so this is uh, so yeah, I mean this is you know there's something very unique about the situation. I think a lot of things come together. The fact that it is you know um, a white country invading another white country, and the fact that the American national security establishment um, has some goal clear goals here and comes clear obsessions that they're working on. I think this has driven people you know up the wall. Well, I notice a crossover between a lot of the people supporting Ukraines in, in the sense of nobody wants Ukrainians to be killed or to be invaded, but there's a lot of support for war by the same people who supported lockdown. I don't know if there's a theory out there to be developed, but it's a very strange thing for me to see people on the left supporting this. And there seems to be little concern, as you said earlier, uh, you have to reverse the situation. And if the shoe were on your foot, well, we might not like what Putin is doing, but there's certainly no reason not to criticize it if you are an American, given what our country has done around the world. Uh, I remember in the early days of the invasion in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, people were supporting this from the left, from the Democratic Party. And this was a necessary war. We have to just do it. We have to get back what they took from us. And no one seemed to be concerned about the fact that the hijackers were not from either country, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think there's probably more support, I mean, among elites, uh, among the Republicans in the US for the uh, Afghanistan war than among uh, liberals. But I think you're, I think you're right. I think it's, bi- it is bipartisan. Um, and I think this is an establishment versus non-establishment bias in, in the US. Um, with the Ukraine stuff, I think almost everybody's, you know, caught up in it. So just a few of us independent voices on, uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, I've seen Freddie DeVar and I've seen uh, Michael Tracy and Glenn Greenwald and, you know, myself and a few other people have been, you know, on the right, you see Tucker. So you see um, some people um, who are more skeptical of the story of what's going on. Uh, But this is basically, you know, all of society elites, you know, the people who listen to them, uh, most, most pundits. I mean, it's really, it really is something, you know, that's united the country in a way I haven't seen uh, probably since September 11th. It's weird how adversity unites people, even though they're now suddenly experts in Russia-Ukraine politics, getting their news from Twitter. I'm a bit cynical about the way that social media has taken hold of our quote-unquote knowledge of area studies, as it were. And I think social media has a lot of blame in a sense, not as a kind of ether, but our use of social media has a lot to say for what is going on, because it's very easy to ramp up the anger and block people and retweet things you like and then call out those tweets you don't agree with. I ran a piece the other day and I got some slack on Twitter for it, but it's like, what is so controversial about saying that there's a backstory to what's going on rather than running with the Putin as Hitler narrative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think people that doesn't sell it. People like their simplified narratives. They don't like to think carefully about what American foreign policy has been doing across the world. So the humanitarian catastrophes in Syria and Libya, uh, in Yemen and Afghanistan. Um, you know, it's it's basically, you know, we have very short attention spans. We have people, the people who most focus on foreign policy, the reporters, the think tankers, uh, the government officials who sort of interpret the world for everyone else. Uh, these people are, um, you know, they're invested in a certain world view and the worldview is American imperial domination. Um, and these people, you know, have a certain view and they, they tell you to get mad at certain atrocities and certain wars um, and pay attention to certain kinds of human suffering. Uh, and they tell you to basically ignore others. And unfortunately, um, you know, that, that manipulates people. That clearly, clearly works as we see in this case. Is it time for NATO to go? I mean, yes. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's much reason for it. I mean, it was uh, started as a defensive alliance. Um, the country that it was supposed to defend against the Soviet Union is gone. Um, it's now sort of they say it's necessary to uh, uh, face face down Russia. Uh, but you know, it's causing more problems with Russia than it's solving. Basically, the last invasion uh, that Russia undertook of another country was in 2008. That was the same year of Georgia. That was the same year that the U.S. Uh, the NATO basically wanted uh, the made an announcement that. We're going to bring Georgia in, and this Ukrainian conflict is also about NATO. I mean, even if even if there was no, even if Russia did nothing, I mean, they would still find a reason for NATO to exist. It enabled the U.S. war in Afghanistan, um, so you know that's not a good thing. It also, I uh, mean, people have been talking about NATO going to confront China. Um, you know what that would, you know, why would what would what does China have to do with? NATO, it's just, it's completely made up because, you know, they need something to do if there is nothing to do. If there was no Russia, they would go fight China. They would go fight, they would go find something else. Um, and so it's basically its own bureaucracy. I mean, if you look at the NATO commanders and the people who run NATO, they're the ones, you know, calling for things like no fly zones now. I mean, they're, they're, they are the most aggressive, hawkish individuals. They're not, uh, they, you know, when they're NATO commanders, they don't represent a, uh, you know, they're, they're, they become representatives of NATO, not, a, not their own country. Um, and so you can look at the NATO website and you 
you could look at the NATO sort of social media and it's its own thing. It's like this, it's like, it's this independent agency that's above and above any country that has its own interests that it's trying to pursue. Um, and that should, you know, and that I think is, is harmful. So, you know, I think, you know, that'd be great. I mean, I think NATO abolition would be a great idea. Uh, but in the meantime, we should, we should try to stop NATO expansion. I think Russia is trying to do that by force here to make sure Ukraine doesn't expand. It might backfire other countries might join NATO, uh, but Ukraine probably won't. And I think that's what Russia cares about most. Well, recently, Peter Hitchens mentioned that Ukraine is being used as a battering ram against Russia. And he put this in the context of the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Can you walk our listeners through how the current war in Ukraine is linked to this doctrine and NATO? Uh, so I think by Wolfowitz Doctrine probably means pre- preventing a uh, a peer competitor from uh, emerging in the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. Yeah, I don't think it's that organ. You know, I don't think it's that organized. I think it's more you know bureaucracy and just moving forward. Russia is not going to be a um, major power. It's economic major power as far as um, economically. It's basically you know it's got economic problems. It's got its own very localized interests that it cares about, usually involving Russian speakers. And Ukraine is a special case. Um, so it cares about its, its border area. So th- there's no uh, there's no um, possibility that Russia, you know, displaces the US as the global hegemon um, or anything like that, or even for even forms a, a realistic alternative. I mean, with China, that that's a, that's a difference. That's a different story. I mean, they're going to be the most powerful country in the world. Uh, but that's not likely with Russia. So I think what you're seeing is basically you're seeing um, interest group politics, you're seeing a couple of things, you're seeing emotions. I mean, the, all the things we've talked about before, uh, driving the hostility towards Russia. I think you're seeing social media and uh, regular, you know, traditional media driven uh, hysteria, and you're seeing it all sort of manipulated and used to the ends of uh, certain people who have their own interests and who have their own vision of what, you know, the American role should, the world should be and what their own role in the world should be. Basically, when they see the American uh, role in the world, they see themselves as basically running the world because that's what America, you know, running the world means. It does not mean that all Americans vote on, you know, what we're going to do in the Middle East or what we're going to do in Latin America, it means that there's a certain class um, that's basically determining the future of countries. Um, and I think that, you know, that that confluence factor sort of explains what's going on here. Well, it's interesting to me when I look at who is egging on this war from in their couch watching TV from the left, because the same people who are engaged in transgender ideology, critical race theory, they have this ideology that's called intersectionality. And in intersectionality is constantly the calling out of post-colonial oppression of all forms of oppression linked to U.S. hegemony. Yet the same people are pushing for this conflict. There's a huge disconnect there historically. And I'm wondering why that is. Now I'm thinking back to my education in the States when we were taught about World War II. We're taught in the US about the Axis and the Allies and that the Soviet Union is mentioned, but very little in terms of the World War II setting in the textbooks I was taught at least. Now I'm thinking to the way in which liberals are egging on in their pushing for this conflict, but at the same time, it doesn't really jive with their quote unquote intersectional beliefs. Because if you really are against colonialism and oppression of that form as it existed during let's say de Gaulle, then why would you be pushing for a conflict against Russia? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm no expert in uh, intersectionality, but I, I think that it's basically, I think it's more of a, a, a American focused um, uh, ideology. So I don't know if it has much to say about foreign policy. I mean, leftists of a previous generation, the people who you'd call far left, maybe 20 years ago, I mean, there is there was this critique of American foreign policy. Uh, this emerged during the Bush administration. Um, there was a lot of uh, anti-war sentiment on the left. I think that's all gone. I mean, I think that you basically see woke people and woke people are supporters of American empire. And I think for good reason, because American American empire basically in a lot of ways uh, spreads wokeness. We we push for LGBTQ rights, our, our conception of what LGBTQ rights means. Uh, we push for identity politics and affirmative action and you know, feminism in different countries. Uh, so I think that the left has made peace um, with American imperialism. And I don't even see much talk on the left about imperialism today. I hear about racism. Uh, I hear about sexism. I hear about uh, homophobia and uh, heteronormativity and, uh, and uh, you know, transphobia. Uh, but I think, yeah, the sort of uh, anti-imperialist uh, critique of American foreign policy, I, I just don't see many leftists making that these days. Why do you think that is? Because here's my theory. <laughs> uh, the leftists who used to have historical material analysis of class, of means of production, ownership of production and so forth, they lost that battle to the right, to the conservatives, the Republicans in the US. And what they could control was language. So it's really easy to tell people to identify as and to use these are your pronouns, put that in your signature or you might lose your job because those are things that can be directly controlled. Where can we control public housing? Can we make more public housing? Are people on the left today actually worried about the homeless? Because I didn't see that during lockdown. I swear, Richard, during lockdown, I saw the people supporting the workers. I was rather shocked. I started watching Fox News. I, 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 I'm shocked to say this because I couldn't watch Fox News in the days after 9-11, but here I am watching Fox News, seeing more concern on that channel for poor people than I did on any of the so-called leftist TV shows, to include Rachel Maudo. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, yeah, identity has certainly overtaken um, uh, certain overtaken economic issues or foreign policy or really anything else on the uh, on the left, um, I think it's an outgrowth of civil rights law. Basically, I think civil rights law incentivized uh, certain kinds of activism. I have a uh, article that people can look up if they're interested called "Woke Institutions." It's just civil rights law. Um, so basically, it became big business uh, to find discrimination to sue people for discrimination based on uh, certain protected classes. Uh, but you're right. I think this is the this is basically the trend of what we're seeing. And you know, they they it's always easier to attack sort of. You know, it's like if you wanted to attack American foreign policy, there are big, you know, uh, interests that are going to attack you back, right? There's uh, the military-industrial complex. There's the, both, both parties in Congress. There's the uh, there's the prestige media, um, and then this anti, you know, focusing on anti-racism and sexism and homophobia. You know, that's sort of an easier target, and I think that you know people like it's it's just it's just simpler uh, to to do that because you know it's, it's profitable. You can actually succeed, and we've created a system that rewards uh rewards thinking in these terms um and i think that you know i think there's actually been some kind of a uh you know not an alliance but yeah but a, something of alliance between uh sort of the woke the identity politics stuff in american foreign policy you see uh nato i mean if you go to nato it's you know they have videos about diversity and about uh, women in nato and all these things uh so that's you know that's there um 
And uh, yeah, I mean, this is, um, you're right. You think you're right about these developments. What should Biden do? Uh, he should um, he should basically work towards a um, he should work towards a settlement and I think the se- the settlement that we should get now is the same settlement um, that we could have we should have tried to work for before the war uh, which is that basically uh, Ukraine becomes a neutral state um, it's not going to join NATO um, and then you know you probably should you're going to have to recognize some Russian territorial gains uh, you know Crimea and, and Donetsk and Luhansk I mean countries it's not good to uh, want to uh, take other countries' land by force, uh, but in this case, you know, superpower is never going to give up that land. So if someone comes to the U.S. and says, you know, you have to give up uh, New Mexico or something, I mean, that would never, you would never get peace. So Russia will never do that, no matter how poor you make them, no matter what you do to them, they will never give up Crimea and the Donbass. So you have to accept that. And basically, what you know, the the Russian would do, Russia would pull out and it would stop threatening Ukraine militarily. Um, and I think that's the basically the outlines of what the deal is. Now we're not really going to that point. But I think when this thing ends, that's the way it's going to have to. Are there any world leaders that you're seeing that are heading towards a reasonable advance of dialogue in that way? Um, well, I mean, the American politics is just so tough because Biden is so constrained by basically Washington's just run by crazy people. And so are the media on foreign policy. I think Macron has been a little bit better. Um, he's limited in what he can do because, you know, the U.S. is the real issue here. But he made he and the Germans, they made some uh, uh, real efforts to basically talk to the Russians uh, before the war started, while the U.S. you know wasn't really willing to offer anything. Um, so I think that if, you know, if Macron has a little bit more of an uh, if he can have a positive influence on Biden, that'd be a great thing. But eventually, you know, who ha- who matters is the U.S. here. Um, and they're going to have to be the ones to uh, make, make the move. What media can you suggest for our listeners that might be more objective to be watching or listening to these days? So I'm following, um, you know, a lot of things on Twitter and then a lot of things on uh, uh, Telegram. Um, the... Um, you know, you have to understand there's nobody really like completely unbiased in situations like this. Uh, so basically, um, the uh, there's a guy named, so basically I'm looking for people with different biases. So the people giving the Western perspective, and some of them are, you know, I, I shouldn't say they're all just very, very biased, but they're also relying on certain, uh, uh, you know, on certain accounts and not others. So even their information source is biased, even if they themselves are not biased. So there's a guy named Rob Lee on Twitter. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Dmitry Alperovich uh, on Twitter, L-P-E-R-O-V-I-T-C-H. He's been very good at predicting. Um, uh, he predicted the invasion beforehand and he's been insightful commentator uh, ever since. But I also go to Telegram um, to get things that, you know, that are hard, the, the Russian perspective, which is harder to find. So there's a something called Intel Slava Z. That is a, um, basically it's a, I don't know who reads it, but basically it's the Russian perspective. So you'll get the Russian perspective. You'll get uh, uh, an English language. You'll get, um, uh, you'll get, uh, you know, photos and videos of what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, um, you know, if you follow, if you read the actual, not the New York, uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, they're reporting the actual articles. If you read the articles don't just look at headlines they're very good um you can get you know some understanding of what's going on uh so you know i'm reading a lot of things but you know if some pe- people are probably going to uh, uh have limited time those are the sources i'd go to you've got a lot of people taking in media on social media you've mentioned some names of people who you deem as more objective but as you are aware most people are sort of running with the ball they they share an article from cnn and that's it and the pumping up of, of rage is really fierce in this 
age of new media. And I'm just wondering, what can we do as independent thinkers to sort of steer away from that, not just of our readers or listeners per se, but there seems to be an unwillingness of people to read outside their comfort zone. And I tell people all the time, if you can learn another language and read that media, but if you can't, read other media. I watched Iranian TV this week to get another perspective because it's really concerning for me that so many people are going to two or three sources and the same two or three sources for everything. And they're completely unaware of the filtering that they are being subjected to. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to sort things out if you have a normal person with limited time. So it's hard to sort of know what's, what's true and what's not. I mean, the sort, you know, the sort, you know, I think that you should probably, you know, who you should be skeptical of, I think is people who work in uh, American government. I think they tend to be the most dishonest, um, I think establishing people. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of outlets um, that are basically uh, neoconservative uh, leaning like Colette, uh, like Bulwark, I think those have been not very credible on foreign policy. Um, so if you have a limited time and you can't read everything, I would, you know, ignore places like that for the most part. Um, the Atlantic too, like people like David Frum and Ann Applebaum. Um, I would, yeah. So I would, I would, um, you know, so I'd, I'd go to the, you know, the mainstream media, the newspapers of the U.S. are are still okay, uh, just as a sources of information. Uh, but I think you're right that it makes sense to go after to go out look for foreign sources of information too. Um, but also at the same time, uh, realize that there's a there's nothing that's not. Uh, propaganda to a certain extent, and especially when there's a major war going on, you're gonna you're not gonna find a completely unbiased source of information. So just every time you're looking at something, say what is the bias here, and how can I correct for it, and you know what makes sense, how how does it square with what I'm reading from other sources? That's really all you can do. Thank you.